Well, good morning, everybody. Hi, you're there. That's great. Hey, thanks for inviting me back. I'm really grateful to pastors John and Amy for inviting me to return. That's not really uh, often happens, not because I think I'm such a bad speaker, but because people usually only ask you once. And so to come back is a joy, and I've been so excited to share this message with you. If you do have your Bible, would you turn to Matthew chapter 26? Verses will be on the screen, and you'll see verses highlighted on the screen in a different color. You won't see that in your Bible. <laughs> that just means I'm probably going to say something about the highlighted words you see on the screen when they come up. So there's something I want to say about it. So just so you know. So are you familiar with the concept of foreshadowing? Okay, foreshadowing. If you are not, it's when a movie or a book or a poem or some kind of literary thing gives you advance warning or advance info um, or hints to what's going to happen at the end. And if you're careful to watch out for it, you can figure out movies. So there's a Martin Scorsese film that's very famous. And he peppers through this film the letter X. And every character that appears in the letter X is foreshadowed. I'm not going to tell you why. But if you watch the letter X in this movie, you will see something happens to those characters. Do you remember that creepy movie? It's a classic Hitchcock film called Psycho. It scared the living daylights out of me when I was a kid. And uh, the protagonist is a woman, and her name is Marion Crane, which is the name of a bird, which is foreshadowing the creepy stuffed taxidermy birds that Norman Bates keeps in the motel, among other taxidermied things you find out right? It's foreshadowing. One of my favorite movies is called The Prestige, and it's about uh, magic and magicians who are kind of fighting with each other to best each other in their magic tricks. And one of the magicians named Borden, early on in the movie, shows a little boy a coin with the same thing on both sides. And this is a foreshadowing of the most important clue to the movie to help you figure it out. I'm not going to spoil it for you, but you'll have to watch The Prestige. I detect foreshadowing in Matthew chapter 26. I think the author is using foreshadowing, the writer. In the upper room and the Last Supper scene, which immediately precedes where I'm going to be talking today, uh, which is the Garden of Gethsemane, immediately before that, the context before that, Jesus speaks of the bread and the cup, we're going to take communion later. So Jesus is talking about the bread as his body and the cup of wine that they're drinking as symbolizing his blood. And I believe this is foreshadowing that Jesus already has on his mind his suffering and death as he walks into the garden. It's already on his mind. Jesus also warns Peter in this passage preceding the Garden of Gethsemane of his three denials. And I think this is foreshadowing the three drowsy denials of support that the disciples fail in giving Jesus the support that he deserves because they fall asleep continually throughout this whole scene of Jesus' prayer. And I think the very name Gethsemane foreshadows what happens here. Do you know that means oil press? 
Gethsemane means oil press. And what's happening in an oil press is that um, olives are crushed and they're pressed to give their precious oil. We know it as olive oil, right? You probably cook with it. It's grapes, uh, sorry, olives have given their lives for us as we cook, right? They're crushed and they're pressed. And, and this is foreshadowing what's going to happen to Jesus that begins in the garden of Gethsemane. He's pressed and crushed beyond imagining. So I don't want you to think that Jesus praying in the garden of Gethsemane is just one of those run-up scenes to the cross, which is the most important thing. It is the most important thing. But the Garden of Gethsemane, in it, Jesus' blood is first spilled. Did you realize that? It isn't on the cross that's first spilled. It begins to be spilled in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke 22 tells us that Jesus, in the second of his prayers, begins to sweat. Even though it's a cold night, John tells us in his gospel it's a cold night. People are warming themselves by a fire. But Jesus is praying so intently, he sweats, and his sweat is mingled with drops of blood. So the blood is first spilled in the garden. Jesus is tempted in this prayer, but he holds it firm. And his victory over the tempter, the devil, reverses what happened in Eden. So two gardens, Eden and Gethsemane. And what happens in Gethsemane reverses. Jesus, as the Son of Man, reverses what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. Remember, they were also tempted, but they fell to the temptation. Jesus in the garden reverses what happens in Eden. He is tempted by the evil one, and he does not fall to the temptation. His victory reverses what happens in the garden of Eden. It's so critically important. And then Jesus, who taught his disciples to pray, our Father who art in heaven, you're probably going to look at that prayer, maybe you already have in this series, our Father who art in heaven. He returns to this very prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He grabs from that prayer. I think that's why we call it the Lord's Prayer. He actually prayed this himself for stability and guidance while he's on his face in the dirt of this garden. He's praying bits and parts of the Lord's Prayer. He brings it into his experience. So the garden scene is recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four Gospels record it. And I think it's important because this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane unveils Jesus, the rock and stability of the universe in which we live. It reveals his dark night of the soul where he is weak and crushed. He is agitated, fearful, completely left alone, yet trusting in the love of his heavenly Father. That's why this is so critically important. That's why we want to look at this prayer. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to begin in verse 36. But let me um, set the scene it should be a map right there first, okay? So, um, this over here is called the Mount of Olives. And it's so-called because there were olive trees all over. It was, it was like wearing clothing of olive trees. Olive trees in Jesus' day were everywhere. And then the Garden of Gethsemane is at the base of this mountain. The Kidron Valley cuts like a slice from a knife, 
and separates the Mount of Olives, which leads to Bethany and all the places that you know Jesus went, and it's right down the center of the Kidron Valley. And then this is Jerusalem. You can see the temple here and everything else. So Jesus and his disciples, somewhere in here, had the Last Supper in the upper room. And then the Bible says they sang a hymn and they left and they walked out of Jerusalem through one of the gates, down through the Kidron Valley, and up to the Garden of Gethsemane at the base of the Mount of Olives. And that brings us right to Matthew 26. But let's pray together. Holy Spirit, you're the best teacher of all. There's no one who knows Scripture better than you. Would you take over? Would you so fill me with your wisdom and your knowledge? And would you so work in my brothers and sisters here that together as a community of believing people, we would put ourselves under and submit to the teaching of your word by your Holy Spirit? Would you do wonder upon wonders? Would you astonish us with your word? And would you teach us so that we might grow? May you, Holy Spirit, show us Jesus, for that is what you do best. We love you and we thank you. And everybody said, amen. All right, so Matthew 26, verses 36 through 38. Let's look at it. So then is a time designation. So then means right after Jesus had the Last Supper, and they sang, and they did what I just said they did. They walked out, and they went through the Kidron Valley, and they came out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. We already know the meaning is the oil, the olive press, the olive press. So we know something's coming. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there to pray. A lot of people ask, how in the world do we have the text of Jesus' prayers when the disciples were all asleep? Right? That's a good question. Well, what we know is that all the disciples, minus Judas, are now with Jesus as they're walking. So, 11 disciples are coming, and he tells them all to sit somewhere in the garden while he goes to pray. They're probably never more than a stone's throw, Luke says, from where Jesus is. So, maybe 50, 60 feet, if you can throw a stone. I don't know. And then what he does is he takes aside Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, along with him, and he begins to be sorrowful and troubled. Now, Peter, James, and John are his closest and safest friend circle. They go up to the Mount of Transfiguration with him. They're in lots of spaces where the other disciples are not. In fact, John, in the book of John, which I find interesting, John refers to himself as that beloved disciple. I mean, he really carried the fact that Jesus loved him, right? He called himself the beloved. He was Jesus' closest friend. When Jesus is on the cross, he gives John care over his mother. So John is like a brother to him. So he pulls these guys apart. The other eight disciples are sitting over there, as Jesus told them. He pulls these other guys apart around him, and he begins to tell them about how he feels. Look, and then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Now get this. Stay with me here. 
Here's Jesus. I don't think there's ever any recorded place in any of the Gospels up to this point where Jesus says, I need something from you as a person to his disciples. Maybe he said, I was hungry and I'm thirsty. Could you get me a drink? He probably said that. It's maybe not recorded. But he doesn't ever, I think this is the first time in Scripture where he says, I need something from you guys. Please stay with me and pray along with me. Support me. Be present with me. See this, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. This is straight from Psalm 42 and 43, which are one psalm in the Hebrew text. Let me read what Jesus is using as he prays to, the, to his heavenly Father about how he feels in this moment. Psalm 42, 5 and 6, the beginning of 6. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become restless and disturbed within me? Hope in God and wait expectantly for him, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. That's exactly what happens at the end of the prayer. O my God, my soul is in despair within me, the burden more than I can bear. Jesus, as a good rabbi, is saturated with Scripture, and he's telling them, I'm Psalm 42 and 43-ing right now. Sorrowful and troubled and overwhelmed to the point of death. Ever felt that way? We have come to the point of your human extremity. Everything inside is squishy, and everything outside is turned upside down. This is where Jesus is in this moment. It's plaintive. Can you hear the plea? Stay here and keep watch with me. Guys, stick with me. Don't leave me now. I need you. If Jesus looked right at you and said, I need you after the three years he's invested in your life in every single way possible. You've woken up and seen his face. You've gone to bed and seen his face. You've, been, you've seen all his miracles. He's taken care of you. He's raised Peter's mother-in-law from the dead. Practically, I think she was sick. He raised her up to health. And he's now asking something, stay with me. And this brings us to the prayer, his first prayer. is actually a series of three prayers, Matthew 26, 39 to 41. So going a little farther, so Jesus then, here's the eight over here sitting in a place, and then here's the three that are closest to Jesus, and then Jesus takes a few steps from the three. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground. This literally means he collapsed. We see the pictures of Jesus. You ever see the picture of Jesus in Gethsemane? He's on his knees in his beautifully pressed robe, and he has his praying hands like this. He has his beautiful composed face. You ever see that one? And the, the Shekinah glory is around him. You can almost see the Disney birds in the distance twittering around, right? That's the picture we're given, but that's not the picture. He collapsed to the point of, like, you ever feel grief and anguish so much that your whole body, like your legs give out, and he falls on his face in the dirt. 
That's the picture here. He collapses, and he prays, my Father, this is directly out of the Lord's Prayer, only instead of our Father who art in heaven, he says, my Father. He personalizes it, my Father. You imagine God the Father hearing his Son pray those words. Remember Jesus' baptism? God said in the voice that comes out of heaven, this is my Son. And now my son is saying, my father, if it is possible, hold that in your mind, put that on the desktop because we're coming back to it. If it is possible, may this cup be taken. This is passive. In other words, he can't let it go on his own. It would have to be removed from him. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Again, directly from the Lord's prayer, thy will be done using the Lord's Prayer. Then he returned to his disciples, and he found them sleeping. When he just asked them a few moments ago, stay with me, please stay with me, he goes back to them, expecting them to be praying, and he finds them asleep. And I, this is where I would love to have like a picture of what Jesus' face was in the tone of his voice, because I, I think we infer things maybe that aren't right, like shame. I think he's asking as a friend, couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? And it's interesting, he asked Peter, he asked Peter, go. And now he says something that directly relates to Peter. Remember, Jesus has already told him, you're going to deny me three times. Watch and pray, Peter, <laughs> so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter, pray for yourself. Satan will soon tempt you. You can't deny sleep when you're around me, but you will actually deny me. You can't deny sleep, but you will deny me. Second prayer. So he went away a second time. Now, this is interesting because Jesus is persistent in his prayer life. I think we've lost that. I know it's hard for me to be persistent. It's like we're so used to Amazon delivering things the next day in Prime that when we pray and we ask God and it doesn't come like the next day shrink-wrapped and on my front doorstep, it's like I don't pray again. Jesus is persistent. He's coming back the second time, and he prayed, my father, we always talk about that, this is the personalization. If it is, do you see how it's changed from the first? Remember the first one? If it's possible, he's asking for a rescue in that. He's asking for a rescue. He said, if it is not possible, something has happened between the first prayer and the second prayer. I think it's the Holy Spirit as he's helping Jesus' emotions catch up with his own will. He wants to do the Father's will. But like every human being, he has emotions and feelings. And I think we're watching in real time Jesus' emotions aligning themselves with his will to do what God wants. What is Jesus afraid of? Interestingly, he's afraid of a cup. Have you ever been afraid of a cup? 
It seems like a funny thing to be afraid of a cup. I don't go to pour my coffee in the morning and open the cabinet real slowly and go, okay, stay there. Okay, which one should I choose? I'm a little careful because you know cups, right? That doesn't happen, right? That's crazy. Cup is an Old Testament image for suffering. So if you go to uh, like Psalm 78, you'll see that the cup is a picture of God's wrath. In other words, God fills a cup with wrath and he'll take it because of the sinfulness of a nation or whatever, and the, uh, the imagery is you drink that cup. The cup is poured out. So Jesus is afraid of the cup of wrath. He's, he's anguished over having to drink this cup. If you take all of the wrath and the questions we have about the Old Testament and you pour all that in a cup, Jesus drinks that plus all of the things that we have done, all humanity for all time, all of that sinful behavior that brings on wrath is poured into his cup with his name on it. That's what he's worried about. So he says, to be taken away from me, unless I drink it. Somehow, he goes from asking for a rescue to actually recognizing it's not possible and that he's going to have to do it. So he's recognizing and personalizing this mission of drinking this abominable cup. May your will be done, again, the Lord's prayer. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. I think this is really nice of Matthew to try to explain why were they sleeping when Jesus asked them to stay awake. Luke gives us more information. He said they were exhausted by grief. One of the unexpected signs and costs of grieving is exhaustion. If you ever lost someone you love, it will surprise you that grief isn't just sadness. Grief is anger, and grief is tiredness. Grief is withdrawal, and grief is lashing out. Grief is so many things that ambush you when you're not expecting it. Dr. Tim Mackey says this about Jesus finally coming to a place uh, of recognition and personalizing, not asking for the rescue, but actually stepping more now into his calling. And he says this, Jesus' calling was to rescue others by not being rescued himself. Jesus' calling was to rescue others by not being rescued himself. And he's stepping in to that realization in real time. You're watching it happen. So the third prayer, Matthew 26, 44 to 46. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time. Praying three times a day is a biblical pattern, morning, afternoon, and evening. Maybe at 1501, I don't know. Maybe they did that too. Maybe that was their afternoon prayer. I don't know. But uh, David, King David did this. Daniel the prophet did this. Um, the early church was instructed to pray three times a day, morning, noon, and night. It's also uh, biblical. It's um, 
uh, let's see, evening and morning and at noon, I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice in Psalm 55. So it's a pattern. And this must have been how Jesus prayed. He prayed three times a day. And he's saying the same thing. So this now third time, I think he's saying the same thing as the second iteration. If it's not possible and I have to drink that cup, your will, not mine, be done. I think that's what he's saying. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? I think he's beyond disappointment now. I think it's a little bit like, oh my gosh, you're still asleep. <laughs> That's beautiful. I think now Jesus is at a point of readiness. He says, look, the hour has come. And the Son of Man, speaking of himself, that's his favorite name in the New Testament, Son of Man. It's used more times. He talks about himself more times as a Son of Man because he identifies with us as a, as a person. He says, look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. He can spot Judas in the crowd. They're coming. All the temple guards that are coming to arrest Jesus are are coming into the scene. Judas has given them away because John tells us they often met in this garden to have their meetings, their discipleship training, whatever they were doing. They knew this spot. And so Judas has betrayed his master. The disciples have fallen asleep. His closest friends kept resting. They were overcome with grief. And Jesus, you can tell the difference now in this third prayer because he comes out of it, okay, rise up, let's go. It's time for me to start drinking this cup. Look, my betrayer is at hand. Like, okay, guys, let's get up and face this thing. Very different. He's gone from pleading for a rescue to recognizing and personalizing the mission and the calling to drink the cup. And now he's ready. He's ready. It's interesting because Judas betrays him with a kiss. Do you know a kiss in the New Testament times was a sign of hospitality and welcome? I think Jesus' heart was broken over Judas. David Pedersen writes this, it should be emphasized that the Lord Jesus was never wrestling with his Father's will in the garden. Remember I said his emotions were catching up with his will. It's not that he's saying, I will not do your will. He's not saying that. Nor did he resist it. He was yielding himself to it. He was not for a moment disobedient nor rebellious. Christ was, according to Philippians 2.8, obedient to death, even death on the cross, which included every step along his holy pathway to Calvary. The word surrender does not indicate prior resistance. Christ experientially learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Hebrews 5.8. Let's look at Hebrews because three decades after Gethsemane, the writer of the book of Hebrews refers to it. 
And he says this, Christ, in the days when he was a man on earth, appealed to the one who could save him from death in desperate prayer in the agony of tears. This is all about Gethsemane in here. See, he is a man on earth. He's a son of man. He appealed to the one who could save him. That's the passive. God would have had to rescue him. Jesus couldn't step out of it on his own. In desperate prayer, now the writer of Hebrews says it's desperate prayer, an agony of tears. He's weeping and sobbing as he's doing it. But look at this. His prayers were heard. His prayers were heard. If you've ever had the experience where you feel like your prayer is bouncing off the ceiling as you're praying it, this was not Jesus' experience. His prayers were heard. And look what happened. He was freed, not from the circumstance. This is often the conundrum of being a Christian and praying because God often does not deliver us from the circumstance. He changes us on the inside. He was freed from his shrinking from death. Luke tells us an angel came right at the time that he was going to pray the second time, right before his second prayer. An angel came and strengthened him. And it was in the second prayer that he begins to sweat and he bleeds as he's sweating and praying. He was freed from a shrinking from death, but though he was, he had to, I think it's though he was the son of man, he had to prove the meaning of obedience through all that he suffered. Prove here is like the great English baking show. Do you know, we call it needing, they call it proving. So when you're proving the dough, you're kneading it, slapping it around, and getting it ready, to, you're breaking it down. And this is a picture of the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is being proved. He didn't have to prove himself. It's not saying that. He was proven through his suffering. He was also learning through his suffering. And now we'll continue the rest of Hebrews. Then when he had been proved fully suffering, fully worked over in a way, and that's going to continue to happen now after this garden experience, he proved the perfect son. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who should obey him. He becomes now our source of salvation to all who will obey in believing him, believing in him, trusting in him, being now recognized by God himself, recognized by his father as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The reason that we can pray to Jesus, and he is our high priest with whom we can be as candid as he was in Gethsemane with his father. We can be candid like that with Jesus. The reason that is offered to us is because of Gethsemane. Jesus learned it. He learned your extremity of your emotions. He learned the depth of loss. He learned what it felt to be left alone. He learned what it felt to be stretched beyond imagination. He learned what it felt to sob and not be comforted. He learned all of that so that he could be, when you pray, that beautiful high priest for you and for me. Today in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's a holy place. And if there wasn't a war going on, pilgrims would flock and wander among the ancient olive trees there where Jesus agonized in prayer. So I have a picture. 
of the Garden of Gethsemane. I was actually here in 2003, and I was praying under one of these ancient trees with one of my great mentors, Jill Briscoe. We held hands, we knelt down. I could kneel back then and get up, and uh, we prayed. I don't even remember what we prayed about, but I remember praying with my friend. I will never forget that. What happened in Gethsemane millennia ago still speaks to us. Here's three things I think we can take away from these beautiful, this beautiful scene here. We don't know actually where Jesus was. People try to find the spot. I'm sure an Orthodox church has put a plaque on a tree somewhere and said this was the spot. We really don't know. I think we can learn trust from the Garden of Gethsemane, Father trust rather than self-trust. Jesus trusted in his Father. The disciples were trusting in themselves, fully focused on their own worry, fear, and anguish. So they were not even capable of being with Jesus. Jesus trusted in his Father. If we have faith in ourselves, we set ourselves up for failure. And if we trust in the Father and in his love, we will be victorious as Jesus was. We learned about pain. Jesus processes his pain. He doesn't shy away from it. He processes it with his Father. He's, he's weak and he's vulnerable. He's honest. And he has a desire for close community and solidarity with his friends, which he does not receive. Dr. Tim Mackey says this about pain and Jesus. He says, it is not that in your most painful moments Jesus is with you, Gethsemane teaches us that in your most painful moments, you are with Jesus. You see the difference? Yes, Jesus is with you, but you are actually with him in his suffering. Thessalonians teaches us that we are part. We take part. When we suffer, we're taking part in that suffering that Jesus also suffered. We're with him. We are with Jesus in our suffering. That's what gives it hope and dignity. And then we learn about Jesus' prayers. I've already alluded to this. Prayer is his first resort. He's honest. He's persistent. He's fervent. He's specific. His prayers attracted enemy opposition and angelic support. That's powerful praying. He's saturated in Scripture. He's praying the words of Scripture, and he's personalizing it. He's also praying in solitude, and with a group. He would rather have prayed with the group, <laughs> but he's in solitude, and he's strengthened. Prayer strengthens him. He's strengthened in it. I think there, what we see in this passage, too, is the difference between the disciples and Jesus. Obviously, they're asleep because of their grief. I bet they prayed, though. I bet they prayed, but I wonder if their praying was focused more on their worry of what are we going to do without Jesus because he's now talking crazy talk about dying. And I bet they were consumed with all that that meant for them. Like they hitched their wagon to this star, and if that star was going to go out, they were in a heap of trouble, and they know it. When Jesus is different, he has as much or more, I would say, anguish than they do. He's going to actually pay the price for everything that they have done. But his anguish drives him to his knees in a different way. Instead of worrying to God, he's actually praying to God. 
He's handing over all of his thoughts and his fears to his father. And in the end, he's strengthened. He has a plan. He has fortification. He didn't just say, I want to do your will. Now he's like, I'm ready to do your will. Something happened in his prayer. So that's what um, Cynthia Swicegood in her uh, book on the prayers of Jesus says. She says, what if we were a community that stopped worrying to God and started praying to God? And here's the prayer I think we could pray. Jesus, show me what you want me to do, fill in the blank, whatever the situation. Jesus, show me what you want me to do. Give me the strength to do it. Your will, not mine, be done. And then wait. And he will answer you. Your prayer is heard. Father, thank you for this beautiful text of Scripture. I pray that my younger brothers and sisters who are in this room who have been so quiet and amazing, God bless them. And for all of my adult brothers and sisters in this room, Lord, would you take this message and seal it into our hearts that we would not be a worrying community, but we would be a praying community. Worry shows self-trust. Prayer shows father trust. And Lord, may we be a community where we trust in our Heavenly Father who loves us and hears us and frees us from our worries. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.